Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Morning. All right. Great. Good to, good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue to worship with our minds and hearts as we look at God's Word. We're starting a new series this morning in Jonah. And uh, I, I just want to shout out to our, uh, to our amazing women um, and the ministries they do. And I want to encourage the men to write the check for your wife to go to the retreat and get it done and get it sorted out today before you leave. And, and please, uh, let's have those surveys done by next Sunday. That's the deadline, next Sunday the 19th. All right. Uh, also, last week I went through the vision of the church and what we're up to and what we feel God's leading us into. And I think I acknowledged a lot of people for this awesome work you're doing here in ministry. But I want to just have a shout-out to my brother, Jamie Fike. Uh, Jamie, you want to stand? I know you don't like this, but Jamie does all the artwork for our uh, stuff here. So, amen. Thank you, brother. So the book of Jonah is kind of controversial. That That's the book that people say you're an idiot if you believe that's true. And it's the book that has been somewhat divisive in the church and it shows uh, a prophet who's got a very negative opinion of God. And so for those reasons, it's been controversial in church history. But, you know, Jonah's a runaway. And as we were praying this morning, somebody said, Lord, we're all runaways. We're all runaways. At one point or another, uh, at least according to the Gospel of John, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were running from him uh, advertently um, or inadvertently before we came into an understanding of who he is. And there are those of us today that are still looking, still seeking. And if you're here and that's you this morning, I'm super glad you're here uh, because we're going to look at this story and we have to see uh, from the get-go that the book of Jonah uh, crosses some pretty significant barriers in the supernatural. And yet, uh, we follow a God who walked out of the grave and ascended into heaven. So, um, you know, assumptions and worldview makes a big difference. And uh, in the church, uh, Jonah's been everything from an allegory to a true story. And so we're going to go through this today. The biggest thing we're going to see, is we're going to see the heart of God. We're going to see the heart of God for you and you and you and me. We're going to see his relentless chasing after us. And because of that, the book of Jonah is going to speak to us out of all the different ways we don't get God's heart. And we're going to see a number of truths come out of this. So I'm going to dive into the text. We're going to look at chapter 1 today. The word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. These are the very words of God. Father, as we uh, dive into this part of your Bible, your word today, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each one of us where we are, Lord, and that the things in our relationship, the things you're calling us to, the things you're pressing on our hearts would be clarified would be reminded to us, remembered by us. And Lord, that we would have a different thought afterwards as we think about what you are doing in each of our lives. And I pray that there would be the presence of the Lord on each person and on this time together in fresh ways today, Lord. We worship you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So let's look at the first obvious question, which is, is Jonah for real? And I think all of us who read the scriptures, all of us who come into these various stories have to reckon with that at one point or another. And uh, this is a a congregation with lots of anglers in it. So you've you've already heard probably a lot of fish stories uh, in your day. So I thought I would start with one of my own, which is my beloved Mariel, uh, swimming with Flipper this week in Cancun. This is what they do on company outings these days. Um, anyway, look at what they train these dolphins to do. Look at this next picture. She's got a couple of dolphins water skiing on dolphins. Have you ever heard of that? 
I can't believe it. But there is a picture. There it is. No, seriously. Uh, Jonah. Who is Jonah? Jonah uh, is a prophet. He's the son of Amittai, it says in verse 1. And um, he's from a place called Gath Hefer. That was actually a little village right near Nazareth. So it is pretty likely that Jesus would have heard about uh, the prophet Jonah when he was growing up because he grew up just down the road from where Jesus did. But also this prophet was assigned to the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, so where the king was located in the city of Samaria. And this was in the days of King Jeroboam II, who ruled from 793 to 753. And those dates are pretty accurate by a number of uh, measures of other, other texts, scripture, and archaeology. So he's a real guy from a real place. Uh, and here's what it says about him in the book of Second Kings. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, is Jeroboam I, uh, several decades earlier, who put the golden calves in Dan and Bethel for the people of the northern tribes to worship at, so they wouldn't be tempted to go to Jerusalem to the temple and therefore pledge loyalty to the king of Judah. So this was his strategy for that, and King Jeroboam II carried on with that. He was the one, now Jeroboam II was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lehobahamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which was spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah prophesied that under this king, the boundaries of Israel would expand. They would take back basically parts of Syria, parts of Jordan, all the way down to the Dead Sea. And Jonah prophesied that, and that in fact happened. So the borders of Israel expanded, and uh, everything should have been fine, but it wasn't, and we'll come back to that. Now, this is the prophet, and... Now we say, okay, well, where else does he show up in the Bible? And he shows up on the lips of Jesus. Jesus only mentions four prophets by name. Of all the prophets in the Bible, he mentions Jonah, Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah. So in uh, mentioning uh, Jonah, Jesus treats Jonah, the fish, and the mission to Nineveh as historical facts. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So, pretty crystal clear. This is uh, the words of Jesus, and um, I think we can take his words 
and we can look at this text and we can say this is a real story about a real prophet happening um, in a real fish uh, that is and, and some profiteering that happened in Nineveh that really happened. So uh, I think that's the best way for us to look at this story. So what is the story? What is the prophecy of Jonah? What is the message? What is what is going to happen as we study this over the next few weeks? And it's a masterpiece. And I say it's a masterpiece for this reason. If you look at the structure and the focus of the book of Jonah, it's about God's relentless grace. It's about God who chases after the prophet who's running, but he also chases after the pagans who are sailing the boat and the people of Nineveh, and he keeps coming after the prophet. So it's divided into two pretty kind of clear scenes. The first is chapter 1 and 2 on the left, and it's the pagans and the sea and the story of the fish. On the right, you have chapters 3 and 4, and it's the pagans and the great city of Nineveh, And look at the symmetry of the message and the way it's laid out uh, as God calls Jonah and then calls him again, tells him the message to give, does it again. We get Jonah's response. We get the warning that Jonah is supposed to give to the the pagans. Uh, The pagans respond. Uh, Then the leader of the pagans responds. And then uh, the pagans act in a much more noble fashion than Jonah does. The, the, the non-believers outshine the believer. And then chapter 2 is a lesson on grace through the fish, and chapter 4 is a lesson on grace through the plant uh, that we'll come to. And give credit to Tim Keller for this uh, outline. And um, what it's interesting is as these stories flow, these two scenes, stories flow, it's almost like Jonah is acting in two totally different ways. In the first story, he's like the prodigal son. He's like the kid that ran away from home, and then he comes, he comes to his senses. And then in the second half of the story, he's like the older brother. He's the religious dude who uh, you know, has his nose turned up at the people of Nineveh, and he you know, obviously thinks he's better than them. And so this... This is the, the condition of the prophet Jonah's heart as he goes through this story. And it doesn't have a super clean ending, so we'll come to that. But there, there is the outline of where we're headed. So the next question is, why did Jonah reject his assignment? Why did he run? You know, he, he not only ran, but he ran and sailed. So he went, instead of going northeast to Nineveh from where he was, Samaria, he went southwest to the city of Joppa, which is a port on the side of the Mediterranean. And instead of going over land to Nineveh, he gets on a boat and he goes as far as he can possibly go in the known world, which is Tarshish, which is the south of Spain at the very other end of the Mediterranean Sea. And why would he be on this kind of path? Well, let's look at his history in the royal court because he prophesied national expansion of Israel's borders under the king, Jeroboam II. But the king, despite all this favor from God, the king continued to behave in an evil fashion. So, eventually, God, after 
lots of grace and lots of time. Jeroboam II ruled for 41 years. Eventually, he sent the prophet Amos uh, for a message of judgment. So is Jonah discouraged? Is he disillusioned? Is he mad at the king? Is he mad at God? Or is he just plain embarrassed because Amos comes into the court and Amos says this, you who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? In other words, they were celebrating the war victories they were having as they were pushing the empire of Israel outward. They're celebrating that. But then Amos says, for the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath in the north, what you just took over, all the way to the valley of the Arabah in the south, what you just took over. So maybe he's just plain embarrassed that he's now uh, not the prophet of the court. There's another prophet in town and nothing has seemed to go in the direction that Jonah thought. And worst of all, this foreign nation has now been selected by God to come and mess with us. And that foreign nation is Assyria, which is a brutally violent culture uh, that's even been kept uh, to this day in these relief murals that they did to uh, show off their military victories. So I've got one. Um, can you, yeah, go up, go ahead too there, Dennis. Uh, yeah. So here's some of these r- reliefs that are still in the British Museum of History. So they would basically decapitate people, cover the streets with the, with the decapitated heads, and then the army would walk in over top of the heads and crunch them. Uh, so this would be their way of saying, we're, we're, we're the new boss in town. The other little thing they had was this idea of impaling. So they would uh, impale people with a sharp pole and then stand them up on the street or on the side of the street on these poles and watch them squirm and die. That was their idea of a good time. So think about this assignment for Jonah to be to be like uh, you're you're a you're a chaplain in the U.S. Marines, and you've been asked by God to go to Tehran today and share the gospel, or or you're you're sent to preach the gospel to those nice guys at Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria. Or you're sent to preach the gospel uh, to the ISIS leadership. This is a little bit of what Jonah was looking at. It would be like a Jew being asked to go preach to the neo-Nazi convention. This is This is exactly what he was facing. And so... Why was he refusing to preach? Well, was it fear? Probably probably up there on the list. Was it prejudice? Was it racial mili- you know, racial nationalistic prejudice against this country? And this is uh this is a very real problem uh for us in the church. Or was it just plain anger at God? You know, Jonah was essentially saying they don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve mercy. 
Now, if, if all of us are totally clear on what the Bible says, none of us deserve mercy. None of us deserve God's grace. It cannot be earned. It can only be given. John says uh, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's no one, not even one, who is good. So when we think about, when we think about this idea of they don't deserve mercy, none of us do. And now we begin to see the heart of God. The heart of God for the people of Nineveh, the heart of God for Jonah, the heart of God for the sailors. As this story unfolds, we see the Lord of grace working through all of these situations. And what what happened? Well, what happened is Jonah made the mistake of evaluating God on his own understanding. So he was standing in the place of God, evaluating God. He was not appreciating or trusting in God's goodness or his mercy or his justice. And he was coming from a place where in all likelihood, he had not really experienced or understood God's grace. Now, there are several people in the history of the Bible and in the history of the faith who come to faith. They believe something, they hear something, they believe something, but they don't understand the whole picture. And they don't understand that their salvation is a matter of grace. And it's very easy to get into the routine of going to church and being part of a church and thinking that we're better than other people. When we have to be reminded over and over and over again that none of us deserve God's grace, none of us deserved his mercy, but that we receive that with joy. And that should transform us. If you really know the good news of Jesus It should transform your understanding of all of life, but especially yourself and those around you. And I I would just dare say that Jonah was really never touched by God. He was a prophet. He spoke his word, but he wasn't touched by the heart of God. And this happens all the time in the church. There's a guy named Bart Campolo. Bart was a Christian pastor. He was the son of a very well-known evangelical pastor and author named Tony Campolo. You may have heard of him. And Bart was working uh, among the poor for a long time and uh, I think around 2012 decided that the whole thing was not true and he became a chaplain a humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. And I believe now he's back in Cincinnati where he did ministry for a number of years. But when he's asked, why did you leave the Christian faith? He says, my ability to believe in a supernatural God that actually does anything in the world died the death of a, of a thousand cuts. You know the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. And essentially... Uh, he is walking in that, that experience of Jonah. He is judging based on his experience that prayers were not answered. 
Now, Jesus tells us to pray and ask anything in his name, and he will do it for us. But there are times where we pray and pray and pray, and the loved one does not get healed, and they pass away, or we pray and pray and pray for a, for a friend to know Christ, and nothing ever happens. And so we can get in that mode. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, prayed for 2,000 people before one of them were healed. Years and years, and he determined to walk in the promises of God, in the promises of Jesus, and not judge by his own understanding, but he kept going. And people started getting healed like crazy, and the vineyard movement and the rest of it is history as far as the faithfulness of God to meet to meet John Wimber in his place of faith. And, and so I think we need to look at this story and we need to see the difference between knowing God and trusting God and the difference between that and knowing about God and thinking, well, I read this so that, you know, whatever, because God wants to touch each one of us. This is why we're focusing on presence this year so that we each have the opportunity to experience the presence of God in worship, in our own quiet time, to have a, a real experience with God, to keep persevering through prayers, to hold on to God until we receive what he has for us. And this is not always straightforward. This is not always linear. But in this case, Jonah's theology has been to judge everything by his experience rather than by the word of God that he was preaching. So Jonah thinks he can hide from God. This is another aspect of his understanding that maybe if he goes to the other side of the Mediterranean, you know, is, is his God a local God? All the sailors are praying to their God. Is, is God somehow limited? And Jonah is basically running away from God. Now, this is the idea that God is localized in one place. You know, like, let's go to church. That's the house of God. And that God is here, but he's not elsewhere. And we don't do this. We don't set out to do that, but we do it subconsciously. And yes, when we're worshiping God, he is present and we feel his presence. But this is not the address of God, right? That, that the, the building hasn't been the address of God since the temple on Pentecost Sunday when the holy presence of God came out and fell on the disciples of Jesus. And now we're the temple and it's mobile. The temple is mobile wherever we go. But yet, subconsciously, we still do the same thing of God's not here. We do that in ways that are amazing, but let me just give you a few. Uh, gossiping at the water cooler at work. God's not there. Passing judgment on somebody we pass on the street. God's not there. Yelling at the kids on the way to church. God's not in the van. He's, he's at church. Being nasty on Facebook. God's not on Facebook. Uh, cheating on our taxes. God doesn't care about that stuff. Watching porn. Nobody, God's not there. He's not looking. Having an affair. 
viewing in, inappropriate material, all kinds of little ways that we mentally check out and the presence of God is not there. And what we're, what we're going to discover with Jonah is the presence of God is everywhere, all the time. We just have to come into an understanding of practicing that and getting used to the fact that he is everywhere, all the time. And so uh, the presence of God changes everything and practicing the presence of God when we're reading the scriptures, when we're at work, when we're in the van, when we're on the computer, when we're doing our taxes, all the same thing. This is what David was saying. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God is deeply engaged in your life and my life. The hairs on our heads have been counted. The days that we are going to have have been numbered. He is present all the time. And this is, this is the, 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 the lesson that we need to learn from this first bit of Jonah. But there's more. So under examination, Jonah reveals his true sense of his identity. So they ask him, who are you? And he answers in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He still starts. He doesn't start with God. He starts with, I'm a Hebrew. That's his nationality. That's his national identity. That's who he puts first, what he puts first. And then he does say that he worships the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But worship is knowledge. Worship for him at that moment is not obedience. It's just knowledge. And so we see this national peace coming into, coming into Jonah's identity. And we realize, oh, oh, oh. So his identity as a national is stopping him from going to another hostile culture to give the good news of God. Because that is number one on his list. It, it's like Peter. Peter. Peter's number one thing in life was his commitment to Jesus. I'm never going to do what everybody else is going to do. I'm going to be with you all the way, no matter what happens. I'm going to die if that's necessary. And the first time that that is tested, Peter folds like a $2 suitcase three times. Well, why? Because his performance was his identity. Not the love of God or the love of Jesus for him. So rather than saying, I'm a son of the Most High God, he's saying, I'm a Hebrew national. That's who I am. And so that gets in the way. And this shows us this 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 ethnicity being at the top of his list, that, that God's love has not penetrated all the way. And that's where we have to stop and say, what are the things in my life that are at the top of the list 
before the fact that God loves me and died for me and lives for me and gave me his Holy Spirit so that I could be like him. What are the other things that creep in? Our work identities. Our family identities. Yes, our national identities. Sometimes patriotism rises to that first place. This is what's happened here to Jonah. So we got to think about what's really the list. What does the list look like? If archaeologists and anthropologists came in, if a study team came in and took apart your house and took apart your schedule and took apart your bank account and took apart your social media, what would they say was your primary identity? What would they say was your secondary identity? Third level identity. And where would God be on that list? Where would Jesus be on that list? Where would the Holy Spirit be on that list? That's, that's the thing that's blocking Jonah. Now, finally, in verse 10 uh, through 12, he asks to be thrown overboard. But then what is his motive? What is he thinking? Is he repenting? Is he coming to the conclusion that he's gone too far and he actually deserves death, that God should just kill him? Or is he rather wanting to die instead of going to Nineveh? Would, he, would that be better for him? Or is he starting to have pity for these innocent sailors who are now trapped up in his disobedience? You know, every time there is sin... There's some kind of storm. Sin is not, you know, uh, neutral. Sin creates consequences, and those consequences create a storm. The sin of overspending creates a storm of delinquency phone calls about your credit cards. Well, this storm that we're in the middle of is a consequence of, of this. And, and so what is... Jonah's real motive here when he says, throw me in. And we're going to see in this story that his journey away from self-righteousness into and, and pride into a relationship with God is going to be painfully slow. And sometimes it is slow. Sometimes our journey is slow. What is the key? The key is faith. See, so far, Jonah has been reading this thing entirely through his lens and entirely through his internal set of priorities. But the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, which lists all the Old Testament greats of the faith, begins and ends with these verses. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The faith without knowing the outcome, like Abraham with, with Isaac. Now, these Old Testament saints were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words, they did not see the Messiah be born. They did not see the cross. They did not see the resurrection. They did not see the ascension, but they saw God. 
and they saw the hand of God and the promises of God. And without a whole lot of evidence, they believed them and they followed them. But we have all this additional information. And so I'm going to come back to that. But so what happens? Well, these sailors, Jonah says, throw me in. Well, they, they actually they actually prove more open to God than Jonah because they start calling on their gods. And they tried to go and row their way out of it, and they couldn't. And then they turn to the Lord, and they start calling him Yahweh. They call him by his personal name in verse 14. They cried out to Yahweh, please, Yahweh, do not let us die. So they've gone from calling on their gods, the generic gods, to calling on the God of Israel, the Yahweh of Israel. And here is where we see this amazing transformation of these pagan sailors. And we, we can stop there and we can just recognize that sometimes God speaks and works through non-believers. That we don't have the monopoly on the truth that God has sprinkled his grace and his truth into lots of other places. I think he did that to keep us humble, to keep us open. And I think he did it because of how he loves and how he walks in grace and mercy. So these sailors are crying out to Yahweh. And so they're living Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here, the pagans are actually moving in wisdom, and Jonah continues as a fool as this whole story goes on. And then finally, in verses 15 and 16, uh, I don't know if pity kicks in, but Jonah is open and is being thrown over. And for a minute, and I believe it's unwittingly, for a minute, he looks like a substitution savior. He looks like a substitutionary savior that will go to the ocean to his death to save the pagan sailors. And that's why I say I think it's unwitting at this point. But he, he is a picture right there of Jesus who willingly and with full knowledge goes over the side for you and me, goes to the cross for you and me. And that kind of love, that, that sacrificial, substitutionary love is the real love of God that moves the world. So when someone sacrifices for us, it moves us. When someone does something at great cost to themselves for us, it moves us. Because this substitutionary, sacrificial love is what really changes the world. And this sacrificial love is what God wants us to see in this story of Jonah. Because as we get ready to take communion, we're going to enter into that place of meditation where we're going to have a conversation with God. And what? here's the question. What might be in the way of your relationship 
with God or his assignment for you? you know, what have you put up as barriers? So, for example, you might ask, what's the last thing that God told you to do that you didn't obey? And you might want to revisit that in this few moments of quiet we're going to have when the worship team, you guys can come on up. Or you might have prejudice. It might be racial prejudice. It might be economic prejudice. It might be some kind of prejudice for others that's, that's actually getting in the way of you following your calling to work, to work in the ministry to those people. It may be fear. A long time ago, you may have said, God, just don't send me to Africa. But actually, you may be walking away from a lifetime call to missions that, that God has for you. I, I want us to be open to that because this is, this is the lesson of the book of Jonah. Are we going to walk into the mission that God has for us? Or maybe it's that we have a disdain for people who are far from God. We've become religiously self-righteous. And we have a disdain for people who are far from God. And we, to the point we don't want to talk to them or get involved with them. Or we may have an identity issue. We may have our work identity, our national identity, our racial identity, something else that is higher up in our list than our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High. And if you're seeking today, if you're here and you don't know much about the Bible, you don't know much about what Jesus is all about, and you're searching and you're seeking, I just invite you in to listen to God in this time. Let Him speak to you, uh, and let him, let him speak to you the way he spoke to Jonah, except be open. Be open to what he wants to say to you today. Jonah mistrusted the goodness of God, but you and I know about the cross. We know about the body and blood of Jesus that we're going to have here for communion. We know about the resurrection. We know about the ascension. And so... We have so much more information than Jonah did. And yet we still walk in some of those Jonah-like habits of distrust. And I think one of the things we can do is just ask God to cleanse us of all that and to make us truly open to whatever he wants. So that's my prayer. Father, as we uh, now move into a time of communion, we thank you, Father, that we can have an encounter with the very same God who encounters Jonah in the pages of the scriptures we are studying today. Father, we ask that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, show us the things that are in the way of both our relationship with you and our assignment. And as we come, uh, Lord, I, I just ask that you would speak to each one and prepare us for communion. And brothers and sisters, I remind you that communion is a very serious matter. I just encourage you to examine yourselves, to let God speak to you. And when 
you are ready. The followers of Jesus are welcome to the communion table. If you are seeking God today, if you want the presence of God today, then I encourage you all to go to our prayer teams. So prayer teams, come on up. Father, this is your time. We worship you. Amen.